0: Go to exponentbeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two, zero, for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Content warning for this episode includes child loss and suicide. Please take care while listening. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have ten things to tell you, and you have ten things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10ThingsToTellYou. This is a show about digging deeper, And sharing our stuff. I'll go first. This episode is one of the most tender and important that I've ever shared on this show. And I am just so deeply grateful to my friend, Amy Ortloff, for having this conversation with me and letting me make it public. I grew up with Amy's husband, Steve, in our tiny town in Oklahoma of about 4,000 people. Steve is my sister's age. He has a younger brother, my brother's age, and then another younger brother about my age. And our parents were very close friends when we were growing up. I have known this family my whole life. In 2017, Steve and Amy lost their middle child, Ryan, to suicide. Ryan was 17. He had just finished his junior year of high school. It was a devastating heartbreak, of course, their family, and to the whole community, really. About a week after Ryan died, Amy started posting on her Facebook page every single day little stories about Ryan, memories, what the grief felt like. Amy was diagnosed with PTSD, and eventually, alongside the stories of Ryan, she also started sharing things from therapy and the boundaries that she was setting up in her life, how to treat her, basically, what to say, what not to say. I didn't know Amy very well, even though I'd grown up with her husband, but we had been Facebook friends for a long time, and I watched her share herself every single day in the most vulnerable, raw way, and I actually think that it changed me. This was years ago. This was before I had honed in on my very specific message about sharing ourselves as a way to be known and as a way to be less lonely. And even though I had experienced the power of sharing in my own life, I think that watching Amy share through her grief is one of the things that really drove that point home to me, why sharing is so important. My conversation with Amy in this episode is primarily about that sharing and about that first year after Ryan died and how Amy's sharing impacted a whole community and how her words on Facebook saved lives. She also shares about her own grief process, what PTSD looks like for her, the boundaries that she set up in her workplace and on social media that helped her get through such a difficult time. This episode is not about mental health or suicide, but if you know someone who is struggling, please follow the guidelines set up by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Talk to them in private, take them seriously, listen to their story, tell them you care, ask directly if they have plans to hurt themselves, and call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. The primary goal of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast is to foster connection, to get us all sharing, to make us feel less alone. I am so honored to give you this important conversation with Amy Ortloff. She's a mom, wife, teacher, writer, speaker, and advocate. Let's just start a little bit. Well, where do you want to start?
1: Well, I think the easiest place to start is probably... Less than a week after he died is is the very first time I wrote on Facebook, and I wrote about um, a little thing of Play-Doh sitting on his desk. He had started therapy a month earlier. He had been diagnosed with PTSD himself, and he came home from therapy one day and had this little thing of Play-Doh, and then he had a rock, and he talked about Play-Doh is moldable and we can change, and but the rock is permanent, and so that he can change some things and some things he can't and he had set that out on his desk and he would get it out sometimes and use it and after he'd died I found it on his desk and the play-doh was sitting out and it was hard it was no longer pliable you couldn't change it into anything and that's what I shared on Facebook was that that now he has died and he nothing can change from that so he was forever 17 at that point and that was my very first post it was only just a few sentences long, and then I just gradually shared every day either a picture of him or or a memory of him, and I would somehow relate it to a present feeling that I was having, and it was a teeny tiny glimpse into my day, but it meant so much more for all of his friends that were following me on Facebook or any community member. And so I just learned to share a little bit more. What most people didn't know was when I would write on there, it would take me over an hour to write a few sentences. I would write that out, and then I would kind of process it and then reformat it. It was like doing my own therapy session, kind of, and putting it out there. What was compelling you to share this intense
0: grief on Facebook because we are family friends. We've been longtime family friends. I've known your in-laws since I was born, you know, mm-hmm. and we were Facebook friends before Ryan died. And I don't remember if
1: you posted a lot or not. No, I didn't. I was not like that. It felt like I just didn't want him to be forgotten. I wanted to share bits and pieces of him. And the more I shared, the more instant feedback I got from people on, I didn't know that story, tell me another story, share more stories. And I was encouraged to share. And so it just became very everyday. It was the start of my day, every morning, and I would, I would write something about him. And then I didn't look at Facebook toward the the end of the day, and I would see all the comments. Because it was a lot. Having to grieve on social media is not the same as, like, when when I was younger and lost a grandparent. Ryan was my first grief. He really was. I've lost all my grandparents, but I was younger. Um, They were all older. You know, it made sense. It was logical. And his death to me was not logical. It did not make sense. And so... I learned a lot by sharing online that grief is not what I thought it was. And so teaching people to grieve with me and maybe some of the comments they said I would delete. Um, Wait, say more about that. What kind of comments would you delete? I had people that would write, don't forget you have two other children. Um, Yeah, that was a really hard one and these were people you knew friends you know or i mean of course my friend list went from 300 to 900 within days of his death you know every one of his friends wanted to follow me and and the entire community but there were things like that well-intentioned comments like he's in a better place it's true he is in a better place but like i miss him right here on earth like that's really hard uh that's right that's not a helpful comment
0: in with a child I feel like people maybe say that kind of sentiment if you know with an older person who'd been very ill or something or even those
1: kind of comments were made like I just lost lost my grandparent last week it's not it's not the same and it's different I mean I don't want to compare any type of grief even one child to the next it's not a comparison but in that moment of someone's greatest loss is not the time to talk about your own loss right. your pet or your distant cousin, I guess. I don't let me ask about
0: because this is a a teeny tiny town and when your friend list went from your three hundred right. people that you know to nine hundred, did that feel comforting because people wanted to be with you
1: in your grief, or did it feel like voyeurism or something, like people wanting to I really saw it as comforting. I know some people around me thought that it was not appropriate, and I felt like that they he really was loved. He was a um, dynamic kind of kid with a huge personality and a big smile, and I think he had a lot of friends and a lot of people who just really thought that he thought they were great too. I mean, he just made people feel good and laugh and. So I took it as people wanting to learn more about him. Like, they wanted to grieve with me. I, I was not offended by it at all. I, I really thought they just wanted to hear more about Ryan. And, and as the weeks went on, someone even mentioned the fact that I wrote about him every day was a reminder that he was gone to other people who were continuing on with their life, you know. hmm I remember watching you share
0: after Ryan died. And at the beginning, it was about Ryan, like you're Mm -hmm. saying, like, it was a lot of focus about what kind of kid he was. And, and I didn't know Ryan. So that was helpful for me. But then, as the months went on, um, and I don't remember exactly, but I remember you sharing more about your own grief and sort of how you were feeling. And, you know, I'm on social media every day. I like social media, I think it's really important. And I have never seen someone share their real-time grief it sort of feels more culturally appropriate for people to go hide in a hole with their sadness and then come out and be like okay I'm all better now and I remember saying to my own parents at the time who know you know your family same thing of being like I've never seen this I think this is so brave I'm gonna cry. I'm sorry, I'm the one that's gonna cry not you. <laughs> I think that's we'll go back so and forth. Yeah. Inappropriate that I'm the one that's gonna cry about this. But I just thought I've never seen I've never seen anybody do this ever. And it is really important. And but I am guessing, because I'm from this same small town, that maybe not everybody had that take on it that right. you are sharing so bravely every day. So I'm not trying I don't want to focus too much on the negative here because I know there are people that will help buy it but I do want to just get a feeling like kind of what you're saying before we press record when you went to Walmart or whatever and there were people there who were probably seeing what you were posting like what was that like?
1: I did not we didn't actually leave the house for a couple months um we because we couldn't leave the house the amount of people that came to our home every day after he died was I I just couldn't grief really taught me how much I'm loved And so that was really hard to have so many people constantly wanting to see us and wanting to check on us. And about a month out, our doctor told us that um, we needed to put a sign on the door and limit the time that they could come by because we were still barely able to breathe. We, We were just so deep in it and so present in our community that it was hard for them when we would see somebody for the first time that maybe hadn't come to the funeral or hadn't come to our house. If we saw them later on, they would take us back to day one. And that is hard. That was really hard because we worked so hard to get to day 30. And I don't know, it's just, we, we couldn't go shopping for a long time. And when we finally did go to Walmart for the first time, I think it was about Two months after, we left town. We went 30 minutes away. We didn't go to our Walmart so Mm. that we would hopefully not see anybody that we knew. I was diagnosed with PTSD right about a month after he died. And one of the homework assignments I got, which maybe we can talk about this in a minute, was that I had to leave the house because it was easier for me to stay home. But I had a fear Of leaving the house. Because if I left the house, I would come back and find someone dead. So I wanted to stay home. I didn't want to leave. Well, Mm. one of my homework for therapy, I called it homework, was that I had to leave. And so we went to Dallas for 4th of July and stayed at a hotel. And we went to the giant furniture store there. And it was like being on vacation from our real life. Because no one knew us. Mm -hmm. Like, we could walk down the aisles of this store I had a complete meltdown in the middle I just sat down on a couch and started to cry but that didn't matter to me, I didn't know any of those people it was so freeing to know I could go anywhere I wanted, nobody knew what I was carrying and as I walked through the store I was like, I wonder if they've lost a child like, I really learned a lot of compassion and grace for people and like some of the comments on Facebook that people wrote it really taught me people don't know what's appropriate to say and as the months went on with therapy, I learned more and more grace for others because their intentions were, were with love. They just didn't know. And so I just kept being told by my therapist and the doctor, you have to teach them how to grieve. You're teaching them every day by the way you're responding. And, and people would ask, how are you? Well, don't ask anybody grieving in the first month, how are you? Yeah, I'm terrible. There's no answer for that. And so I taught people to say good morning instead or hello or it's nice to see you. Tell me how you taught them that. Did you actually literally say, please don't ask me how are you? Please I wrote just- about it on Facebook at one point. I did. Um, and then did people in town follow suit? They did. And I immediately also, when, when I I could only go to work for about 15 minutes at a time. I started about six weeks after he died, and I went for about 15 minutes, and then I'd come home. And so every day I was seeing a new employee, and when they would say... You know, hello or whatever. Um, how are you? I would always say it's good to see you, and I would keep walking. I never answered the question. I just say it's good to see you. Good morning. Good afternoon. I learned boundaries were very important for me, and I put a sign on my office door that said, "I'm at work right now. Please, please do not ask me how I am," and limited talking about Ryan or talking about myself because I could only work for such a short amount of time that people would come in and and try to ask me how Steve or or our children are. And so I just had to set boundaries like that. I also got a little timer for my desk, like a sand thing. It was five minutes. And as people would come in, I would flip it. And they had no idea. And when the sand ran out, I said, I'm out of time. You have to leave. (laughs) And they would have to get up and go. So I learned very quickly to make boundaries so that my work environment was a safe environment. That was something I learned in therapy very soon. I had special treatment. I still have special treatment. This is a small town. Ryan's best friend, his mom is our family physician. The therapist that I go to, her and the doctor were here almost every day after he died. I had special treatment at my job to have therapy come to me. I didn't have to leave my office. I um, had a fantastic principal that knew I couldn't talk in front of people yet. I couldn't be touched in front of people. So I was very guarded at my job where people were not allowed access to me. They had to now, instead of once they would come into my office and do whatever, they had to now email me. I was very protected and they took away a lot of my job to help me heal. I know that this this special treatment of if I had a moment at school, somebody would show up you know it was not i had to do this on my own i had a very big support team being diagnosed with ptsd right off the bat of this i learned tools instantly my very first symptom was about a month after he died i think it was right after we came back from dallas we were going to um, some family friends for dinner And my oldest son, Jeffrey, was home from college. And then our daughter, Emily, was 13 at the time. And my house is a ranch-style house and with the upper and lower living room that you can kind of circle through, okay? And so my husband, Steve, said, let's go, it's time to go. And he was going through the house turning off all the lights and I was going through the house behind him turning on all the lights. And I didn't know what I was doing and he didn't know what I was doing and he kept thinking it was one of the kids going back to their room or turning on the lights and he had circled through two or three times and he finally kind of ran into me and I just immediately started to hyperventilate and cry. I didn't know what was happening. He's like, why are you turning on all the lights? And I said, because if I leave, and we're gonna come back and we're gonna find someone dead is what it was. I mean it took it wasn't exactly those words and so I learned that if I left in the daytime it didn't make a difference. But if I left in the night I had to turn all the lights on because the night that Ryan died, we left in the afternoon and he was fine. He was okay. He was sitting in this chair eating popcorn and doing great. And when we came home it was night. And so Um, I needed to change the lighting in the house. And so for months after that, I always turned on all the lights when I left because I needed it to be bright when I came home because it wasn't bright when I came home the night he was dead. And um, so I had to do a a homework assignment of going out our front door and walking the, the driveway because every time I would come in the garage door, I would have a panic attack. Um, because I thought that I was coming into the house to find someone that had died, and I had to walk the driveway, come in the garage door a dozen times a day, over and over and over, and and speak truths as I did it to say, you know, that Ryan was no longer in pain, that Ryan was um, safe, that Ryan loved me, and I just spoke the same kind of truths over and over, and I would walk the driveway and I'd come in the garage door. And I'd come inside the kitchen, and and each time I did it, it was just a little bit better, a little bit better. And it took months. It took months and months and months. But then one night I came home from work. It was about 5.30. I'd worked late. And I made it in through the garage door and into the kitchen. And I was looking at the mail, and I smiled, and I remembered I didn't think about it. Mm. It was the very first time. And then immediately I started to cry. I was like, but I did it. I did it one time. And so the next day I went to therapy and I told her and she said, yes, but you did it one time. So it's going to happen again. And I mean, it took weeks before it happened again, but then it happened again.
0: But tell me, were you crying because like out of relief, like I did it or were you crying out of? I forgot. I forgot. I forgot.
1: forgot. It was so hard. It's almost like
0: you hold on to. Mm -hmm. It was so upsetting mm
1: -hmm. that it. It was around four or five months the first day I didn't cry that he was had died. It was the end of the day, and I realized that I hadn't cried yet. And it was like, oh, I did it. I made it through the day, and then I cried out of guilt. Because yeah. how could you? It wasn't that I forgot he died, but it was like I made it a day without crying, and that was an awful feeling. Mm-hmm. It was awful to laugh the first it was awful to laugh the days following his death when people would come into my house and, and they were, you know, because that's what people do when you're grieving. You tell stories and you laugh and, and there was just so much noise. It was really hard. Um, we've struggled with being happy. I didn't ever want to be happy again. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I still don't want to be happy. I don't. it's a, I, it's just It's just a struggle. And so for that very first time dealing with the PTSD of saying, okay, I, I made a step. That was a huge step. I made it inside the house without thinking of that flashback of that memory, then then this is working. And so I kept doing that work of walking the driveway, and, and sometimes I would get in the car, back it up, and drive around, and park the car, and like do the actual reenactment of the night, and try and get in, and just gradually over and over time... There are more days that I don't have the flashback than the days that I do have. I can now walk in the house Mm -hmm. and not have that trigger. Now, I have every day, I have something. I've never gone a day without, even if I'm on vacation. It's way better for me to not be here, but it happens somewhere, everywhere, every day. I'll have some kind of trigger. But the tips and tools I've learned in therapy have made it where people don't realize that I may be sitting across from you and having a flashback, and I'm doing the tools in my mind. I can, I. um, You saw me before we started. I have a mentholatum stick, and I. That is my biggest trick. I learned it about two weeks after he died. My therapist gave me baby bath. That's mentholatum for like when your baby's sick. Oh, uh huh. And she said, try this when you take your nightly bath. It's very opening. So it's like vapor yeah, rub. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. it makes you breathe in, you know? Oh. And mm-hmm. so it makes me take a breath in. It makes me kind of okay take a breath you're you're not breathing like I had to remind myself how to breathe so I use that as a trick a lot of times and now that you know I have a mask on a lot of times I can sneak it up there and people don't even know what I'm doing I'll put peppermint essential oils in my mask if I'm if I know I'm going somewhere stressful it's very it makes me breathe and stay present Mm because I need to stay present I also learned to have something in my hands if I have to talk about something a stuck point in therapy or something i'll go with the squeezy ball or play-doh or silly putty but i love to knit knitting is my best way and i can really disconnect from whatever i'm having to talk about and my voice becomes much clearer and there's not a lot as much pain there yeah
0: with sunshine outdoor activities and so many fun things to do outside it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price
1: price line okay.
0: you have knitting needles in your hand right <laughs> yeah, now
1: <tapping> them. so <laughs> i try not but those are some of the the tricks i've learned well i have
0: so many questions about this the first one is because you started therapy you know right after Ryan died was were you already in therapy before that like were you open to therapy like I think a lot of people if they don't already have that practice in their life that feels like a big task to take on so how did you know not how did you know but like you know there was no taboo of people saying you need to start therapy or
1: um it was the night that he died the therapist was here she she was one of the people that showed up and And um, she said, I'm your after. And she came every day after. And she was was, someone you knew? No, I I didn't know her. Now, my husband went to high school with her. You know, this is a small town, but I'm not from here. I didn't know her. She was my son's therapist, but he had only been, you know, less than a month in therapy. I didn't have anything wrong. I didn't have any taboo ideas about it or anything. I I didn't know I was really going to therapy I bet the first few weeks because she was coming here to my house I didn't go to her office till a full year after she would come to my office at school or I would meet her at my house Um, but the first month she was here every few days or the doctor was here every day and they were looking for my symptoms. I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. They were they were watching me. They suspected it was going to happen, and so I didn't plan to go to therapy. It just happened. And then um, a few days, you know, maybe a week after he had died, we we had her meet with my son and daughter. Um, it was never. It just became part of our daily routine.
0: I keep hearing the pluses and minuses of a small town. In that you are cared for and watched in a healthy way, and and things. But then you know the other part of it is you can't go anywhere without someone knowing what has happened in your life. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting that you balance that, or you took control of that narrative by posting every day because you would have lived in this town no matter what, and so you could have let everyone else assume what was happening, or you could be like, "I'm going to control." You know this and post about it every day. I literally, I think it's so hard to do that. I can't do that now with without tragedy. I can't sometimes post what's going on with me because it is so
1: hard. Mm-hmm. But you, they were only seeing a little bit of it. You know, like I eventually wrote a book that's still just sitting there in my computer, and the book has all those Facebook posts. But it tells you the, the flip side of what really happened. So if I said I had a hard day at school today and I'm grieving this or that, then it actually says I sat in the parking lot for 30 minutes. I couldn't get out. Of it. it was telling you the real story behind what the Facebook post was and giving you mm-hmm. more of the mental health. on. I had totally talked myself into thinking that I was not loved and not needed. I struggled every day with, with being loved. I never... You mean before Ryan died or oh, after? After. I never doubted I was loved before he died. I never struggled with mental health. I never um, had suicidal thoughts. But after he died, I, I did not feel loved. I did not feel needed or wanted. I um, just felt so empty and so lost. And it was overwhelming for people to love me because it felt like it that was for them. Like they're loving me for them, not this isn't what I want. Because all of a sudden, I was a person that loved to hug, that loves to touch, that I'm a touchy person, and I can stand to be touched. You can't, cannot touch me. I actually had to, people had to start guarding me, um, like at church. My son would go before me or my husband because people would want to come and hug me and I couldn't handle it. I just could not be touched. The difference was at school, I worked in an elementary school that year, and I could be hugged all day long by children. They didn't have those expectations like an adult. They were just totally innocent. They just... It was like, oh, they need a hug. I want to hug them when they got off the bus, and that was one of the best therapy my principal gave me. Was morning bus duty. I had to greet every kid because I couldn't talk the first thirty minutes of the day. It, I couldn't talk to adults. I just couldn't find words, and so the kids would get off the bus, and I would say good morning, and they taught me how to, to talk. You know, that was a nice little twenty-minute warm-up with kids, and then I could go into the building most mm-hmm. of the time. Sometimes I would go back home (laughs) but just once again I had special treatment Ryan was the first student that had died from suicide in our high school so the school didn't know what to do with me in history as far as I know or at least in recent history now students that had graduated had died from suicide he was the first student enrolled in school he was it was right after his junior year he died June 5th and I was a school employee It was a double, like, they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know how to address the student body. And so I was really just given free reign to wander. And I would go to the high school every day and check on his friends. And that just turned into kind of a magical thing because as I would go over there, I would see them, and and then another student had died from suicide a town away like in August right after school started, and so I went over to check on kids, and then there was another death in a different town away, and so I talked to the student body. Um, It was these amazing things I didn't know I would ever do, and I just kind of became a presence at the high school in a very casual way of, of being there, and then one day, it was about nine months later, My therapist called me in my office at work and said, there's a student that wants to come see you. And she said who it was, and I didn't remember him. He was friends with Ryan in middle school, and he was now in high school. And um, I think he was a year younger than Ryan. And I'm like, sure. I had no idea why he wanted to come see me. And so he came, and he sat with me in my office, and he just started talking about how hard school was and kind of pouring out how difficult it was in different sports and and an ex-girlfriend and life and he was having a hard time and and I was just listening to him talk about all this stuff and I was still like why is he here why is he going to see me and and he said well I just wanted to check on you and I wanted to see if you were okay and I remember looking down at the floor and hearing myself say tell the truth And I looked back up at him, and I said, I will never be okay. And he started to cry, and we we talked a little bit more, and for some reason, I don't know why, I said, do you have plans to hurt yourself? And he answered yes. And I said, what is your plan? And he told me his plan. And um, we talked for a few more minutes, and I... um, walked him out to his truck, and I told him exactly what he was going to do, and he um, handed something over to me, and he he left. He went straight to the hospital. I trusted him to do that. I immediately called the therapist, and she sent the police to the hospital, and the steps of of what you have to do for, for that situation began, and so he left. I was still very, like, kind of disconnected from it all. And I walked back in and my principal came into my office and said, what happened? Because he was in there for about an hour. And I told him the whole story. And I said, the night that Ryan died, uh, my husband and I prayed for good to come. And good has come. And I said, if, if just one life can be saved, it'll be worth it. And, and now there's this life. I mean, this just happened, you know, but it doesn't work like that. You can't trade one for another. It doesn't work like that. And I got so angry, and and my principal said, have you ever heard the story of the starfish? And I said, like, no, and I don't care. And I was just so mad, you know, if I had a stapler, I would have thrown it at him. And he's like, no, I want to tell you this story, and you know the story of the starfish i know okay well there's this man and this boy walking down the beach and um the tide has come up and there's starfish all along the shore and so the boy's picking up the starfish and putting him back in the ocean and they're walking for a while and he keeps putting them back in and they finally stop and the man says what are you doing and he's like i'm saving the starfish. i'm putting him back in the ocean he's like there's too many you'll never make a difference and they continue walking and The little boy sees another one picks it up and puts it in the ocean and says, made a difference to that one. (sighs) Like, I mean, he put me in my place right then. Like, I asked for good to come. This boy just came into my office, and I somehow asked him, do you plan to kill yourself? And he said yes, and that has now stopped. He went immediately into suicide watch, and, you know, now three years later, he's doing great and is this great story, but... I needed to hear that like you just made a difference to this one and you're so angry you can't even see what just happened Mm -hmm. and so I didn't know how big that was in that moment but I um, left and went home and so much happened after that story but I went to Hobby Lobby a, a week or so later to buy flowers for Ryan's grave which I hate doing which is an awful thing but I went because I had to do it and there was a starfish paperweight. Mm. This is the end of February, early March. Like, it's not summertime. This The beach stuff shouldn't be out yet. I mean, Christmas should be, you know, coming, but not yet. So I see the starfish, and I pick it up, and I was like, oh, you made a difference to that one. And I bought it. And it sits over there on my writing desk as a mm. reminder every day. So when I sit there and write, I made a difference to that one. And so a couple weeks after that... I got on Amazon and ordered a hundred starfish charms. I had no idea what I was gonna do with them, but I'm like, I gotta have these starfish. And so I, <laughs> my husband thought I was crazy, and I said, I have a diagnosis, I really am. <laughs> and um, I got these charms, and I didn't know what I was gonna do with them, and, and then all of a sudden, one person after another would need something, and I would share the story, of the first life I saved and the story of the starfish and I would hand them this starfish and I'm like you need to be reminded of the difference you made like they were either struggling in their job or it was another student that came forward that was struggling that needed to say "I, I need help I have plans to to hurt myself and so I started giving these starfish away to different people for different reasons and sharing the story over and over and over. And that now I'm, I don't know, 60 or 70 starfish down the road. I only gave out one during quarantine because I was in quarantine. And um, it was just a couple weeks ago, and it was like magical to, f- to share again and to say... Mm-hmm. I, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to share, you know, I'm supposed to share part of my story and, and it always comes out different the way I share it, the parts that get told and the parts that don't get told to different people. But it's just part of my story that I share now mm-hmm. because it's where I am. It's, it's not a story I want to share ever. It's always a, a nauseating feeling before when I hear somebody struggling and, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go talk to them. I don't want to ask them the questions. But every time I do, either a life is saved or something is changed, good always comes from it. So it's just a reminder of that little starfish to to share. And you've been sharing you know, you've gone around to other schools, right? Or what? Or groups, what have you I been did, doing? Le- so right before quarantine, a uh, middle school two hours away was a high school friend of mine. She's a counselor up there and she had been following my Facebook story. And then I started kind of writing a blog here and there. And she used my blog post to teach su- suicide awareness at her school for a mm-hmm. week. And so they read some of my blog posts and um, I went and I shared different stories of the lives that I've helped save and different stories of kids that have come forward and and just things that have happened and um just by going to that experience I I had to tell the story six times in one day and I learned how big this really was and I talked a lot about mental health and the tools I used not necessarily just the um the suicide stories just about tools that i used and kids could see um how just dis- like right now i just sound great my voice is great it's not cracking at all i wish it could sound like this all the time <laughs> but um there was a moment where i had 50 kids in there and i could tell they weren't really listening to me very much and i knew that i was disconnected and um i didn't i don't ever want to sound like this is my thing i want I want it to never be normal. To not, mm. I don't want it to be okay. And so, the counselor was across the room, and I walked over to her, and I'm like, "I just don't feel her. I need to. I need something cold." And her arms were freezing, and I touched her arms, and the temperature was enough for me to like kind of ground myself that like, you were right here, right now, and I um, just started to cry, and the whole room, you know, got quiet, and. I said, this is my real voice, you know, I'm not supposed to sound like an expert speaker because I'm not, that's not my gift, and so then I just started talking about more and more stories, and I did tell the starfish story in, in a couple different groups of the kids, and at the end of the day, I was in the last group, and that group of kids was so loud, they were just ready to to leave, and I was telling the starfish story, and it got really quiet, and the door opened on the other side of the the classroom, and a coach walked in and said, I just need to tell you that the art teacher just came by, and um, there was a student in there last hour that said they learned that it's okay to not be okay, and that you really made a difference to them, and they drew this for you, and they held up the picture, and it was a starfish, and the whole room, you know, just like, oh my gosh, so... It was little things like that that always happened. But even after the very first hour of talking, a student went forward, was admitted to the um, mental health facilities there and was in the hospital for a week. So she came forward by hearing the story of uh, the first life I saved and that I will never be okay, that you should say the truth. When you ask people, how are you? Don't ask them that if you don't really want to know the answer. And mm-hmm. working in the middle school where I am now, I, I don't like kids to just say, I'm okay. You know, I've taught them, it's okay that you're having a bad day. Don't say you're okay when you're not, because words matter. What you say needs to be true. So it's okay to say, I'm having a bad day, you know. But don't say, I'm okay when you're not okay. Mm-hmm. And so talking about that kind of stuff with middle school students a life was saved just after the first hour and then who knows the um ripple effect of that and what they go home and learn and and it encouraged there were always three two or three classes in there at a time and so their teachers or coaches were in there listening and one of the coaches shared at the end of the class like you may not think this has anything to do with you right now but i've been a teacher or coach for, I don't know how many years, 12 years, and, and he had lost several students to suicide, and he and he's like, what she's saying is so important, like, listen to your words, and it was neat that, that the, the chance I was given to speak then allowed somebody that they have in their own school to share his own story, mm-hmm. and so it was really neat to watch it happen right before my eyes, to be present enough to see... You've got to be part of that. That's Mm -hmm. really
0: amazing. That is amazing. Do you feel like you're sharing in this community or sharing on Facebook where this community sees it? Have you heard from other grieving parents or, or it doesn't have to be parents, but just grieving in general because they're like, in my mind, if I went through something and it wouldn't, it doesn't have to be your same story, but I just know from following you that you know what grief is. Like, I feel like I could come and be safe with my grief with you.
1: So that that's big. Okay, so a lot of people wanted to share their trauma and wanted to share their grief, and I was not in a place to listen. I just couldn't do it. And one of the things I learned and that I try to teach people is that grief is different than trauma. And so for my situation... I felt like I had these two balls in the air, and one was grief and one was trauma. And I wasn't really grieving. I mean, definitely I was grieving, but I had so much trauma from the PTSD that I just felt like I was being jabbed and stabbed and and physically in pain every day that I really feel like I didn't start grieving until the second year. It was a different kind of process that I had to go through. And wait, let me ask this. Let me just clarify. The trauma was from the night he died, right? From finding him, I was the one that found him, and that trauma is what caused my PTSD. And um, so you had to get through that before you were able to grieve the loss of a child, like that. You know, just the loss part. Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't even. um, Wow, there's just so much there. I. I've come so far, like that. It is amazing to think how how far I've come because I couldn't touch the carpet for a year mm-hmm. because he was on the carpet, and so to have to learn how to touch carpet, to have to learn how to sit on carpet. Like people don't realize that they saw me as a creeping mother, but I was learning how to to truly live, to fight a demon in my head all day long. Mm -hmm. Like the, the triggers and the flashbacks were constant. I barely got a break in the beginning and learning all that, uh, you know, going through so much cognitive therapy and all different things that I had to do is why I'm here where I am today. So, So people want, they gravitated mm -hmm. towards me because they wanted to share their stories. All of a sudden, I had different people that were affected by suicide sharing their story. Uh, um, Different people that had lost siblings or anybody that wanted to share their story. That was really hard for me to hear. So I kind of distanced myself. Lots of grieving or lots of parents that were not even in our town, but maybe somebody knew them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um they were saying oh go read amy's facebook you'll you can learn from her and so lots of people that didn't even complete strangers that had lost children years before all of a sudden wanted to follow me it was a huge um kind of gift Oh, I was going to ask: Was that a burden or a gift? It was I don't know. both. It felt very much in therapy. I would say I just feel like I need to write because they they need to hear, they need to see me heal. And over and over, my therapist and doctor were like, "You owe them nothing. Like this is not your job to heal the world, <laughs> you know." But at the same time, I'm like, "I want to change the world." Like, yeah mm-hmm. i I wanted it to to be real and. I loved that I was helping people. I mean, it gave me a purpose. Mm-hmm. I love that I was authentic. But also, I can't control who reads my stuff on Facebook. Now, you know, there are settings now where I can block a few when I put a post out. But for the most part, I didn't know when I would write something, I don't know how you're going to respond. Your own life is going to affect your perception of what i'm writing your own where if you're in a bad mood that day you may think oh she just wants attention i guarantee that any grieving parent is not looking for attention they just don't want their child to be forgotten Mm -hmm. is that why you stayed living in the house and in the town even Uh, that was one of the the questions most people did not think we would continue to live here a lot of times when when children die from suicide the the family does move or when a a child dies at all they a lot of times people will move we were warned very early on about our marriage and our friendships i can still picture myself sitting outside with our best friends one night and telling them that and saying we're probably not gonna be friends how are we gonna get through this and um hearing them say we can do this we're gonna do this together and it is because of of those t- of our best friends that showed up every day that just continued to listen to us over and over um, that we grew closer you know it it definitely was i don't want to say it was a choice that but we were making a choice every day to do the hard the hard stuff because mm-hmm. it would be so much easier to not say your feelings every day
0: mm-hmm.
1: it is really hard to say i am having a hard time and so in the beginning my husband was getting messages from the doctor and the therapist on you need to be looking for this be watching her he always said it was like having a baby deer in his lap he never knew which way i would jump and 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 would we react to things but now you know Three and a half years later, I now have to tell my family, I'm really good at sitting here, but I'm struggling. Like it's actually harder now to to tell somebody I'm having a hard day. I'm struggling today
0: because of the time.
1: Because the timing, I think. I think it was so expected that I that I would be grieving and having a hard time back then that it was constant. It was just like all the time, and now it's it's not as often, or I can deal with it with different tools or go outside and get some sunshine or have a walk or whatever. And if I don't do that and I let it build, you know, it's just so easy to push something away and, or scroll or go have a glass of wine or eat a Mm -hmm. bunch of chocolate. That's way easier. I mean, I'll do it every day over and over, but I won't be healthy. I won't be happy. And so eventually I have to get to that. I have to be able to say I'm struggling and I'm having a hard time. And see, it makes me every time to say you're struggling is just hard. Mm -hmm. But I struggle every day.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And I'm just now kind of more at the the point where I can hear other people's stories and kind of hold it, you know, be in the same space with them and be like, gosh, that's hard. But for the most part, you know, the first year or two, I just couldn't even, it was too much. Of course, yeah. We couldn't watch um, TV shows. For months, we couldn't. We watched um, comedy, like comedians, instead on Netflix. Is about the only show we could watch, and then we would pause it because we were laughing. It was like we felt guilty for laughing, but there were just too many triggers everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you know, like when you get pregnant, all of a sudden you notice every pregnant woman around. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So the word suicide just sin- tended to stick out everywhere. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, and uh, went to the high school one day. And I said to Ryan's group of friends, I said, I I can just now kind of say the word suicide. Is anyone else having trouble saying that word? And, you know, they were just so quiet. And one of the boys said, I can't say it. And another kid said, I can't say that he died. And he just started to cry. I mean, it was just little moments like that of just listening to my intuition, I guess, on just go to the high school and just start talking to these kids. They're amazing. Kids are amazing. We don't give them enough credit. Like they want to talk about this stuff and we are not letting them talk enough about Mm -hmm. it. That's right. I learned so much from them that year. Uh, it was amazing. Another student died from suicide. He was friends with Ryan. He had already graduated the year or two before and he died about nine months after Ryan. And I got so angry. I was just so, I was like, we are not doing enough. What, what can we do? And I came up with this crazy idea with some of Ryan's friends. Like we need to, every Monday in the lunchroom, we need to put our phones down and talk to each other. Like let's build connections and no more social media. Like let's get rid of the phones. And every Monday we're just not going to have the phones. And so I started going after spring break every Monday to the lunchroom and you know, we made little signs for the table that said "No phone Monday or, or whatever and and the kids did it, and it is just so amazing to think that I, that four hundred kids in a lunchroom were doing what I asked them to do. one, like, I don't even know you guys, but this is great. And um, on week two, or maybe it was week three, I walked in and at the end of the tables, they had made their cell phones into like foam pyramids. Like, they wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. This was not, of course, there'd be one or two kids on their phone. That was fine. But the fact that they wanted it, like, and so I just gradually started talking to every kid. I would go up and down the tables of all the kids and just like, hi, how's it going today? It's good to see you. And I would touch almost every kid. I immediately picked up on the kids who did not want to be touched. I'd never noticed that before until I got PTSD. But if any kid would, would kind of make a movement like they didn't want to be touched. I never touched them again. I, I learned who they were, and I would make eye contact and say, you know, it was good to see you. But for the next few weeks, I would go every Monday was my day, and I just started passing out fruit snacks. That, t- that was just magical, and um, they loved it. And one by one, I started hearing that kids were looking for me, because I would show up every Monday. I never missed a Monday till the end of the school. And then it was just one kid after another started coming forward. Like, I look for you in the lunchroom. You're the only person that talks to me. I feel like you're the only person that cares. And they just started opening Uh up and sharing. And then it was like, do you have plans to hurt yourself? And they would say, yeah. I mean, the, the things that they told me i was just like you guys are amazing you're you're so much braver than i was at that age and mm-hmm. they had so much pain and so i just got to be present in their life and so the next school year i just every monday was my snack day and more and more kids i mean it's been over 30 kids now that have been saved um through this little snack that i pass out and they would come looking for me and Save, meaning they would come tell you when they were having They would, the they, would te- they would find a way. They would either text me or they would Facebook me. Um, they would send me an email through the school email. They would just sh- show up at my office. Because then at that time I was at the elementary, and now I've got moved to the middle school, so I'm closer to the high school. I can be on their campus just a few feet away. They would just start sending me messages like, Hey, Miss Amy, how are you, how are you doing? You know, just random stuff. I'm like... Is something going on? Like, I, I got to the point. I didn't have time to chit-chat with a, a 17-year-old. And so, I'd say, is something going on? Yes, I'm having a hard time. Well, what's, you know? And, and I learned with my therapist and the doctor direct questions to ask them to get them to the point not to be drug out and stuff. And so, a lot of them would say it. I would be on the other phone and I would be calling um, this is a small town so you know the chief police is our best friend I could call an officer and they would go to the student's home like this student is at risk we need somebody there you know they would show up so there are, is a benefit to the small town there but you know what that's teaching the whole
0: student body not just for those that are in pain which obviously is a significant number but even The kids who are just being mindful about putting their phones down on Monday, Mm -hmm. what they're learning as they go through their life is like, you know, it felt good to not have my phone for an hour or whatever. And those kind of ripple effects, it's not always just about acute grief, which is clearly a huge part of your story, but just what you're teaching them in general, you know, to just think about your emotions, put your phone down don't hold stuff in. Like all the things that you're saying, it doesn't have to walk all the way down the road to death. You're, you're starting this like way back here.
1: And they're just little tiny things that really Mm -hmm. are so big. Mm -hmm. It's such a little thing. I had a kid just a couple weeks ago, I was sharing the story about how the snack program started with the, the student that died. And and why I started the SNAP program, and a couple days later, a student came to me and said, last fall, you gave me a piece of candy. You were the only person that talked to me that day, and I was suicidal at that time. It was a piece of candy. Like, it's that little. It's that little of just saying, hi, making a difference, and I had forgotten the moment, but I remember him walking down the hall, and it's very natural. You know, teachers want to say, hey, smile, be happy, it's a great day, be positive, that kind of stuff. And I'm the opposite, I'm like, it's okay if you're having a bad day. You don't have to smile, but don't be mean to people. You know, like, you can have a bad day. And I remember seeing that happen, and as he got closer, I said, are you having a hard day? And he said, yeah. And so I followed him to his class, and as he sat down, I handed him a piece of candy and said, well, I hope this sweetens your day a little bit. You know, it was that little tiny bit of kindness that – over and over in the school makes a difference. They just see that little act is so big. It does not have to be a grand gesture. Mm -hmm. So you don't share daily on Facebook in the way that you did
0: that first year or 18 months. How is your relationship to that now with social media and being almost four years past Mm -hmm. that day? you know, kind of where are you now? You're obviously sharing publicly. You're sharing in your real life. What is that relationship to social media or to being so public? I guess is what I'm
1: saying. About three months in, I wrote a public post that said my therapist said that you have to stop sending so many words back to me. Oh, I remember that. Uh, but you had to have been following me at that time to know that. And so I I wrote that you would instead, instead like send me a heart emoji or something instead of putting words because there were too many words coming at me. Meaning the comments on your posts? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the comments were triggering me. And a lot of people didn't know that at the time that I had been diagnosed with PTSD. And so they didn't realize that they would would maybe use the word suicide about somebody they had lost or they would comment in a way that would trigger me and so i publicly put out there i need you to limit your words back at me because i'm trying to heal and so i got less and less comments then of course that always backfires on you because then you get more friends that were not there at the time they don't know that happened and so then somebody would comment and she'd be like you're not supposed to comment on her post. I'm like, oh my gosh, social media. Wow. <laughs> um, there were also people like family members that, were, that shouldn't have been reading everything that I wrote, honestly. Because they were not getting treatment on their own on their side. Or they, they were processing it different. Because you're only reading like a paragraph of my day and then they're processing it the way they see it in their own life rather than if they were actually here in the house and had seen me that day. They were only getting a really tiny glimpse of it and it became more and more, it just wasn't, I did lose friends. I do have family that I don't associate with as much because of his death. I mean, it just is what it is. It's not, it's awful, but. I can't control how other people are going to react. So they were judging you, or they were thinking that you weren't telling the whole truth
0: because they were only seeing a small thing. Like it was affecting your relationship offline, basically. Yes,
1: because okay. because they didn't, they weren't here all day. They were taking that little bit and. Turning it into what they thought it was, rather than the truth of what it was. Nobody really knows the truth except for my husband. He was here every day, and then our best friends were here every day too, and they had to watch so much of the therapy that I went through. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but did that make you post me, less? Yeah, it made me post less because I I didn't like the the reaction. That the comments. I couldn't handle the comments. And so I started a blog because you wouldn't have to have the immediate feedback. You know, it was just like I put it out there. Well then I was getting private messages and stuff and they just were not appropriate. Like I can't believe some of the things people say and Once again, I just had so much grace for people because they have good intentions. They do not live in my shoes and walk in my shoes every day. They didn't know that this morning when I woke woke up, the first image was not a good one, and I I fought all day to to breathe. You know, they they don't see that part of it. So social media in the beginning was very healing and helped so many other people heal. And that way, when I went out in public, maybe they wouldn't say, they did learn how to grieve a little bit differently, I hope, and to respond to me and talk to me. But as time went on, it just became harder for me to share publicly on Facebook a lot. Now, every once in a while, I will go crazy to sit down and write and to post it. Every single one of my posts, I always think is terrible. What? I, my husband has never... He's only read two or three, and that was within, like, last year when I would say, read this before I post it. I always thought they were like, this isn't any good, and I'd put it on there. And, yeah, I always doubt myself. I always wonder if this is even helpful or it's its weird what your mind can do to you. And... Um, That's part of my morning routine. Every morning, you know, I have to write affirmations about myself and and tell me I was very nervous about doing this. But at the same time, I'm like, all I'm doing is sharing the truth of my story. There's no...
0: Were you nervous about doing this because it was public? Because just talking about it, you'll it'll take you a few days to
1: recover from this. Like definitely, I have therapy booked for tomorrow. (laughs) I'm so glad it's sunny today. I'll go outside and sit in my swing again. Um, I have learned that after I share, I do have to have a downtime to debrief. Basically, I was nervous because no one wants to talk about suicide. It's an awful subject. No one wants to talk about grief, but boy, we need to talk about grief more and how to um, help people. Grief. Um, quarantine was great. I listened to so many more podcasts on on grieving and on different parts of it and why people do things. And mm-hmm. that was a nice downtime for me on learning so much about why I do what I do. And because grief is not what I thought it was. It's just a whole lot messier, and it will pop up when you least expect it in ways that you don't know. And if if I haven't done my work for just grieving or for my PTSD, it will come out a different way in an inappropriate way. There, There is truth to that. So if I don't do my morning routine, I might be able to skip a day or two, especially on vacation, but I'm just now to the point where I talk to my husband in the morning. Like That's how much work this is. It's, mm-hmm. It is a daily process of of reminding myself who I am and at one point i was writing that i was loved every day. now i don't have to do that. i know that i'm loved. i'm just so thankful that i am loved and that i don't have to write that every day. but i do have to write that i'm qualified to speak of this. like i don't mm-hmm. you don't get a degree. this is a life experience and and it really is just the little tiny things that i'm doing every day of being authentic in real life that are so much bigger than anything i've shared on Facebook. I mean, the one-on-one people um, conversations is is life-changing, really life-saving in so many circumstances. So It is, and I'm just so honored that you would
0: trust me to have this conversation publicly, and I hope that you're sharing, which I've observed now for years and years, and now other people can get a glimpse into it, that it will Help someone that listens to this. I have absolutely no doubt that it will. I know that it
1: will. Right. I can't wait to see really what comes from it. I know good will come, and so I have something for you. Oh, because you've made such a difference oh. in so many lives with your new book. And it's a it's a starfish. Every starfish. And so this is yours. Oh. And that's so I just really wanted you to know that you've made a difference um just in this last year with the book club because that helped me to start sharing online again just in that group and so I was like oh I'm giving her a starfish oh you are so I don't know what number you are but that's yours I will (laughs) cherish this so when you doubt or forget the difference that you make I hope you pull that out and go I did make
0: a difference. I did. I'm going to keep this where I can always keep it. It will remind me of you and sharing and Ryan and your family and the importance of all of this. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10 thingstotellyoucom slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10things to tell you. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend.